The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So there earlier, this discourse from this morning, (coughs) (coughs) sorry, is the number 27 in the long discourses of the Buddha, and this one is paired, and that's in that that's number twenty-six. And the general feeling of scholars is that later discourses, there's thirty-four discourses in total in this text, and the later discourses are the later you get in this book, the later they are historical. So this is the getting to the end of the book, and probably fairly late in terms of this collect this collection of texts. This one has a very powerful title, um, doubly powerful, because it's taking two very powerful concepts that existed in early Buddhism and um, brought them together. Uh, Sakavati is um, the day of wheel turning. The idea of initiating something in ancient India was sometimes expressed by the idea of setting something in motion. And, uh, and one of the things you said in motion is a wheel. And uh, a wheel is often associated with... Uh, a powerful association is that of a chariot. Uh, armies, you know, con- one part of the reasons why people could have powerful armies is they have chariots. And the wheel of the chariot allowed them to kind of race ahead. And, and um, so the, um, uh, so setting, uh, and so the, the a wheel was used as a symbol of power for ancient uh, rulers in ancient India. And apparently there are, uh, Examples of this are some handheld specters, I think they're called, where little uh, wooden things that had wheels on top of them, or that would kind of wheel would kind of symbolize um, power. Um, and so, the setting in motion, um, the wheel of power, setting in motion one's rule. Um, and so, this idea of setting in motion a wheel was adopted by Buddhists in order to ex- uh, explain uh, the Buddha when he gave his first sermon. This, uh, that he set, in, he set in motion the wheel of the Dharma, which is the momentous thing that the Buddha did for us, for the world, was to start teaching. And this momentous thing, momentous thing is, uh, is referred to as setting in motion the wheel of the Dharma. So, uh, uh, Chakravati means something like setting in motion or turning the wheel. And the Sihananda means um, uh, lion's roar. And lion is pretty powerful. That's a symbol of power. I stood next to, uh, holding my little son in my arms at the zoo uh, with only like, I don't know, four feet away from a big, massive lion. And it decided to roar at us. And I immediately left. <laughs> I mean, there, there were rows and rows and bars between us, but that roar, I wasn't going to mess. I mean, I just... You leave. When that, you hear that roar, you leave. <laughs> it was, it was, you know, like the earth was, it was quite something. And uh, so, th- so these are very, for some reason, these two powerful symbols or ideas have come together in this text. The, um, and so um, there's a frame and there is a story. And this time we're going to start with the frame and then go to the story. And Diana will tell you the frame. And that what I, my proposal is to you is that the, I mean, oh, the lion's roar, not only is it a powerful symbol, but, but uh, in Buddhism the idea is that 
uh, someone who has attained a, a level of realization, like become an arhat or liberated, they would declare that they are now liberated. And that confident de- declaration, I am not free, is, a, is a, your lion's roar. So there were people back then who made their lions roar. Nowadays, you're supposed to be more kind of subdued about your enlightenment and not going to let people know so much and, you know, be kind of a little bit humble or something. But back then, you know. And so, um, so what is it about this text that makes it both so, so significant, it gets this word, you know, turning the wheel, but also this idea of the lion's roar. What's the lion's roar? And if, the, and if it's about the Dharma, something, some aspect of the Dharma, what is that lion's roar that appears in this text? So that sets you up. We made a little change. I just want to make sure that I still have this in my mind. Okay. Well, I'm not sure. It's um, that's the story. There we go. Why don't we go here? Okay. Can you hear me okay? Is this this working? So to reiterate, all these suttas have both a frame and a story. And how this works, like specifically for this one, is the frame is like paragraph one and then goes down to paragraph, I think it starts with paragraph 27 with the rest of the frame. So paragraphs two through 26 are the story and then the frame or the beginning and the end. So what Gil and I have done, both for the Aganya Sutta before and for this Sutta, is we've kind of pulled out the story and then put together the frame and made that into one. So what I'm going to tell you now starts with section one, then jumps all the way down to like section 27, something like this. And an interesting part about this Sutta is that some of it will be familiar to you. For those of you who have been studying suttas or have been a practitioner, or even who has heard some of Gil's talks recently, that um, there are some elements that may be familiar for many of you. So it starts with this, with the Buddha addressing some monks. And he says to them, Monks, be islands unto yourselves. Be a refuge unto yourselves with no other refuge. Let the Dhamma be your island. Let the Dhamma be your refuge with no other refuge. And how does a person dwell as an island unto herself? So he's giving instructions to the monks like how to practice. And this way to practice is to use yourself as an island what does this mean? So one way to interpret this is an island is kind of like a place of safety. There's often like water, like on the if it's on a river, the waters are going on the side, or perhaps there's banks where water is coming up and um, hitting against the side. So an island can be a place where you're secure, 
And he uses the word refuge here also. So this is a place that can um, be of security. I'll say that. And then there's the question, well, how does a person do this? And the Buddha goes on to say something that may be familiar to many of us. Here, idda, a person abides contemplating body as body, ardent, clearly aware, and mindful. And having put aside hankering and fretting for the world, practices abiding feeling tones as feeling tones, practices abiding mind as mind, and mind objects as mind objects. Many of you may recognize that this is a portion of the Satipatthana Sutta, which is a big um, sutta in our practice here, this four foundations of mindfulness. These are the four foundations here that are being pointed to. The body, the feeling tones, the mind, and the mind objects. So the Buddha is saying, take yourself as an island, find yourself as an island, the Dhamma as an island, as a refuge. And the way that you can do that is with the four foundations of mindfulness. It's to practice this way in recognizing body is body and mind is mind. And then he goes on to say, keep to your own pastures and ancestral hunts. This is another way how I'm interpreting it, is another way of saying, keep to those areas that are safe. So um, an analogy that's given in another sutta elsewhere is this idea of a quail who is safe with her little baby quails when she's in the bushes. But then when she goes out away from um, the bushes and into a clearing, then an eagle can come down and grab this little quail. So the idea is to stay um, in those areas that are safe. And what is that? Those are the four foundations of mindfulness. You can stay with the being mindful of your body, of your mind, feeling tones, and mind objects. And then the Buddha goes on, goes on to say, this is what will happen if you do this. Your lifespan will increase. Your beauty will increase. Your happiness will increase. Your wealth will increase. And your power will increase. These all sound like good things. So don't do this just because the Buddha said so. But here are some of the consequences that will happen. And for those of you who have um, read a number of the suttas, you'll know that there is this common pattern where the Buddha makes a list of this is something that will happen, and then he goes back and around and says and defines the terms. So here he has said, and what does it mean by lifespan? Here it's the four roads to power. This is a collection we don't talk about so much, or maybe I should say at IMC I haven't heard as much. It says, sometimes also called the four bases to success. And this is, concentra- so first one, concentration due to zeal and diligent effort. The second one is concentration due to energy and diligent effort. The third road to power is concentration due to purity of mind and diligent effort or 
did I say diligent? Or striving diligently or something. And then the fourth one is concentration due to investigation, due to striving diligently. So these are the four ways to be successful in this practice. And the, both as the um, satipatthana, the mindfulness practices, as well as perhaps like Buddhist practice in general, is to apply zeal, energy, purity of mind, and investigation with diligence of effort. So that's how the Buddha is describing having a longer lifespan. And then he goes on to describe, well, what is beauty? Beauty for a monk is virtue. And um, specifically, he um, points to a very long discourse where he goes into a lot of detail about what virtue is. And essentially, it's to practice right conduct, and be restrained according to the vinya. If you're a monk, you have to follow the rules. Be perfect in your behavior and habits. And see danger in the slightest fault. So see that there will be danger if you um, deviate from these ethical guidelines. Kind of like the um, expression, I can't think of it right now, but the um, dread of, you know, you don't want to um, break the precepts or follow something because there'll be, um, there'll be danger in that. And the last one is to train in the rules of under, that you have undertaken. So that is beauty. That is what the, will be a consequence of this. And then that Buddha also says you will have greater happiness. And what is happiness? Happiness is concentration, putting aside the hindrances, becoming concentrated into the four absorptions, the four jhanas. That's happiness. And then wealth. I like this one a lot. This is very meaningful to me, and it's probably is for a number of people in this room as well, is that wealth is able to suffuse the whole world with loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity. That is when you feel like you have this wealth. You feel like you have what you need. And then the last one is, what is power for a monk? Power is destruction of the taints and becoming an arhat. That is the greatest power, the greatest strength. So this is the frame for this Chakavati Sihanada Sutta. So maybe I'm going to I'm turn this back over to Gil, and he's going to tell the story. And maybe you can keep in mind a little bit this frame, these teachings, and then how they relate to the story. So whereas the Agana Sutta in the morning was addressed to these two Brahmins, this sutta, the teachings, is addressed to the monastics, the people already in the fold and connected to it. And so um, the Buddha has given these core teachings, the four foundations of mindfulness, the idea of being an island unto yourself, and, um, and uh, stay close to those. <clears throat> and then he just, without any explanation, he launches into a story. Once upon a time. It doesn't say that, but it says, Once, monks, there was a wheel-turning monarch. 
named Dala Nemi. Dala Nemi means strong wheel. <laughs> wheel turning monarch named Strong Wheel. And, uh, <clears throat> and he uh, was a righteous monarch of the law, conqueror of the four quarters, and had established the security of his realm and was possessed of seven treasures. These are the wheel treasure, the elephant treasure, the horse treasure, the jewel treasure, the woman treasure, the householder treasure, and the seventh, the counselor uh, treasure. He had more than a thousand sons who were heroes. He dwelt having conquered uh, the sea-girt land without stick or sword, but by the Dharma. That's a nice king. He, 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 he's an emperor who ro- rules from land to land, from the edges of the sea, everything in between. And he conquered the whole known world, not by weapons and violence, but by the Dharma. That, that's a nice ideal. So the context of this teaching, perhaps, is that there were kings in the time of the Buddha and soon thereafter. Even if this wasn't written in the Buddha's lifetime, it was written by people who remembered still what happened in his Buddha's own lifetime. And uh, in the lifetime of the Buddha, there was the consolidation of larger and larger kingdoms uh, in northern India. And uh, the Buddha was seemingly friends with some of the very important kings of the time. The two big ones that he was friends with was Bimbasara and Pasanadi, two big kings, both of whom, in the lifetime, in their in the lifetime of the Buddha, were either killed or usurped by their own son. So, you know, being a king and having your son take over in this kind of way was in the held in the background of the story. <clears throat> So there's this great king, strong wheel. After many thousands of years, because he lived a long time back then, King Strong Wheel uh, noticed that the Dharma, the, the wheel, the tre- wheel treasure, which somehow was up in the sky or somewhere, had slipped. And so he concluded that it was time for him to retire as king. He had lived a life of sensual pleasure. He'd lived a life of power. And now there was uh, other things to do besides be powerful and have pleasure. But now it was time to prepare for death, to have a spiritual life. And so he then uh, renounced the throne and handed it over to his son. You are now king. And when the son took the throne, uh, he was surprised that uh, there was no wheel treasure around that his father had, you know, that disappeared, wasn't there. And the other six treasures weren't there. So he went to a counselor and the counselor said, and he goes, what's going on? And the counselor said, oh, these treasures, treasures of authority and power, they are not inherited. <laughs> they don't come automatically. You have to earn them. And so how do you earn them? How do, you, how do, I, be, how do I become, he's just a king right now, because he inherited the throne, but he's not a a wheel-turning monarch. How do I become a wheel-turning monarch? And so the the counselor says to him, "Um, you have to do these duties. Here are the duties that you have to fulfill. 
um, yourself depending on the Dharma, relying on the Dharma, honoring it, revering it, cherishing it, doing homage to it, and venerating it, having the Dharma as your badge and banner, acknowledging the Dharma as your master, you should establish guard, ward, and protection according to the Dharma for your own household, your troops, your nobles and vassals, for Brahmins and householders, town and country folk, ascetics, Brahmins, for beasts and birds. So first duty is to depend on the Dharma, cherish it, and the second is establish ward and guard protection for all living beings in your realm. Then uh, you should... um, um, uh, uh, Walshi translates that let no crime prevail in your kingdom the actual word is adhamma don't let uh, the non-dharma non-dharmic activities exist on your realm um, and those who are in need give them property and whatever ascetics and brahmins there are invite them, to, invite them over from time to time and get advice from them Ask, ask them questions and learn from them. So those are things you should do. So he did it. And two weeks after doing those things, <laughs> sure enough, the, the wheel treasure appeared in the sky and the other treasures. So then he uh, got out his chariot and his army and he set in motion that wheel in the sky and they all marched to the west to the sea they marched to the east to the sea to the south to the north and all the people they came all the countries they came across people would say your majesty welcome we are yours rule over us (laughs) and and and, uh, so without any violence at all he conquered all these people and his first act of Authority of rulership over the people he conquered was he would say to them, um, do not take life, do not take what is not given, do not commit sexual misconduct, do not tell lies, do not drink, um, do not drink strong drink, and govern as you have done before. Isn't that nice? So I'm, I've conquered you, but you just continue <laughs> as you wish. And um, and so this was great, and uh, and so he then became himself this this new king became the wheel turning monarch, and he lived for many thousands of years, until the wheel treasure slipped, and he passed it on to his son, and the same thing happened again, and this happened for se- seven generations, until the eighth generation. And the eighth generation, the, the seventh son, seventh king, gave it to the next guy, next in line. And this eighth one became king. And the same thing happened where the Dharma wheel slipped and disappeared. And instead of asking for advice from the counselors, this king ruled the people according to his own ideas. Isn't that something? Mm. 
If you're a king, don't rule according to your ideas. You need to follow the, you need to follow the, you know, the way things should be when you're a king. You have to follow the procedures. And follow the Dharma. And being so ruled, the people did not prosper so well as they had done under the previous kings who had performed the duties of a wheel-turning monarch. So then the ministers and counselors and treasury officials and guards and doorkeepers and chanters of mantras came to the king and said, Sire, as long as you rule the people according to your own ideas and differently from the way they were ruled before under previous wheel-turning monarchs, the people will not prosper. Please. Um, so he asked, so the king said, well, tell me what I'm supposed to do. So they explained to him the duties, all those duties that he had to do. And having listened to them, the king established guard and protection. But he did not give property to the needy. And as a result, poverty became rife. With the spread of poverty, so here he was. So one of the duties of a wheel-turning monarch is to give property, food, money, to those in need. But he, that was the one thing he didn't do. The consequences of that, people became poor. And what's likely to happen if enough people get poor? Revolution. What? Revolution? No, these are people aren't so bold back then. Uh, they, they just stole. So uh, with the spread of poverty, a person took what was not given, thus committing what was called theft. They arrested him brought him to the king. The king said, did you steal? And the man said, yes. And he said, well, here. Here's lots of money and treasure. Go this and feed your family and start a business and you know, carry on and you don't have to steal anymore. So then someone heard about that and they said, well, if that's all it takes. <laughs> so that person stole and brought in front of the king. Did you steal? Yes. Well, here, take all this. <laughs> so the third person came along and thought, well, this is easy, and stole. And the king said, did you steal? Yes. The king finally, you know, this is not, doesn't, this is not going so well. <laughs> I think what we need is some discipline here um, and teach a lesson here. So uh, tie him up, march him through the streets, and cut off his head. So they did but when the people saw that that's what happened, all the people went and got their own weapons. And with their own weapons, they went around and stole from others, but they didn't just steal, they just cut everybody else's head off. So first there was poverty, then there was theft, then there was violence. And, uh, and the violence uh, became all kinds of violence and stealing and all kinds. And as all this violence and stealing persisted, those beings that lived back then, their lifespan dropped by 50%. Their lifespan had been 80,000 years. And now they only live to be 40,000 years. Big drop. But then, the killing continued. And... And after the killing, people started to lie a lot. And then the, uh, their lifespan dropped to tw- next generation to 20,000 years. But then after all the 
then people started denouncing each other, speaking bad about each other. And then the lifespans of the next generation went to 10,000 years. And then people became envious and adulterous and the lifespan dropped to 5,000 years. And then people started having harsh speech and the lifespan went to 2,500. And then they had uh, covetousness and hatred and it dropped to 500. Uh, to uh, 1,000? Oh, anyway. And then false view. After that, they started having false views. 500. And what they're going through here is the 10 skillful actions, the 10 wholesome actions. Very important list we saw earlier. And as they kind of broke each of those unskillful actions, their lifespan dropped by 50%. When they'd gone through all of those and they still hadn't done enough bad things, then um, uh, the next thing they got into was incest, great greed, and deviant practices. And the lifespans uh, dropped to 250 years. And then they got really bad and they started disrespecting their parents. And ascetics and Brahmins and the lifespan dropped to 100 years. And then it just got worse and worse until lifespan got to 10 years. And at 10 years, girls were marriageable at the age of five. And they people started fighting. And there was a seven-day period called the Interval of the Sword in which, um, they, in which they will mistake each other for wild beasts. Sharp swords will appear in their hands and thinking, there's a wild beast. They will take each other's lives with those swords. But there will be some beings who will think, let us not kill or be killed by anyone. Let us make some grassy thickets or jungle recesses or clumps of trees for rivers hard to ford or inaccessible mountains and live on the roots and fruits of the forest. Let us go into nature, let's live in the forest and uh, hide away. And they did this for seven days. Then at the end of the seven days, they emerged from the hiding place and rejoiced together, saying, Good beings, I see that you are alive. Then the thought will occur to those beings, it is only because we became addicted to evil ways that we suffered this loss. So let us now be good. Logical. What good things can we do? So they thought about it for a while. And it occurred to them that they could uh, abstain from taking life. That's a good practice. And as they abstained from taking life, their lifespan went up to 20 years. And then they thought about it some more. And they said, let's not take what is not given. Um, well, I should, read, I, should read more, I should read it more fully here. Um, and through undertaking such wholesome actions not taking life uh, their lifespan and beauty increased and their children's life increased doubled in, in length to 20 years and then they went along to not stealing and then their beauty and life increased even more to 40 years 
And then they went through all these things. Uh, went through the ten skillful actions, the respecting parents, they doing all stuff. Until finally, being so virtuous, they got to a grand age of uh, 80,000 years lifespan again. And at that point, at 80,000 li- uh, years, there was um, a great king who um, lived righteously like a wheel-turning monarch and did all the right things. But, or, and there appeared in that time, or there will appear in that time, actually it is predicted now, there will be appear in, this, in that time a Buddha by the name of Maitreya, Maitreya. And when that Buddha appeared, this great wheel-turning monarch of the time renounced the throne, gave the throne to his son, and he put on a yellow robe and shaved his head and went off in order to practice the Dharma. Having gone forth, he will remain alone in seclusion, this king. Having gone forth, he will remain alone in seclusion, ardent, eager, and resolute. Before long, he will have attained in this very life by his own direct knowledge and resolution that unequaled goal of the holy life for the sake of which young people of good family go forth from the household life into the homelessness and will abide therein. He will attain liberation and live in his liberated state. And that's the end of the story. And then it goes into the frame. Monks, because it repeats again what was said earlier in the early part of the frame. Monks, be islands unto yourself, be a refuge unto yourself with no other refuge. Let the Dharma be your island. Let the Dharma be your refuge with no other refuge. Practice the four foundations of mindfulness. So, that's what this story, this sutta has the Buddha teaching the monks. So, what is the connection between the frame and the story? The frame is probably, whoever made the frame probably pulled out some key passages, very important passages from other places in the suttas and put them together in one place. Here, so it was a conscious choice to have these things here, and then combine them with a story, or had the story and combine them with this frame of these teachings: that be an island unto yourself, the four foundations of mindfulness, the four roads to power, the four jhanas, the four brahma viharas, being ethical, becoming liberated, all that. So, what's going on here? That's the question. And to find out, you'll go into small groups. (laughs) (laughs) So um, we have another handout. The handout is just, um, the handout describes the frame, what goes on in the frame. So you have that as a reference point. And the story you heard from me, hopefully that went in deep and made a good impression. And uh, uh, what's going on in this relationship with frame and the story. Why is the story being told? Uh, is it just a fairy tale, a mor- moral tale that you tell kids to be moral, you know, to, by a good idea to be moral? But he's teaching not kids, he's teaching monastics. 
in the context of this frame? What's the value and purpose of this of the story? What's the uh, value and purpose of the frame in relationship to the story? What's going on here between the two? Um, I, the suggestion is, like I said earlier, uh, these people who composed these particular set of suttas were doing it as self-conscious kind of literature. They were composing it intentionally to these different elements work together. And so how are these working together? What's going on here in this? So it's kind of a little bit of a kind of a literary analysis you're doing. Make sense? So the proposal is you do groups of four or five and, um, and uh, have your discussion for about 15, 20 minutes and then we'll come back and then someone from the group can report a little bit the gist of what you guys discussed. Okay? So please.